0: Hey, everyone. Can you do me a quick favor? If you like the conversations we are sharing on the Plucking Up podcast or if the show has motivated you through your own plug ups, can you please follow, rate, and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? Thanks so much. I'm so grateful you are part of this community. today 1 in 3 Americans are suffering from health effects of obesity and diabetes due to poor nutrition this is why real good foods is on a mission to improve the lives of millions through nutritious foods that are high in protein low in carbs and made from real food ingredients so being very candid with y'all i definitely associated frozen food with being frankly either kind of gross and or just not healthy for me and so when i got the chance to try real good foods i was honestly very surprised and pretty delighted by how easy and tasty it was and how good it made me feel because it's made out of real food ingredients. So you can visit realgoodfoods.com and at realgoodfoods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code pluckup15. The link is in our show notes and stay tuned for my review later in the episode. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns in the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they also share with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring. Inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. Alright, we've all had hard days, weeks, even years... But what about an entire plucked-up decade that feels mainly marked by various failures and rejections? Our next guest, who lived to tell how she got through a seemingly endless stream of rejection and failure, is the founder of Girls Who Code, Reshma Sujani. Girls Who Code is a nonprofit organization that teaches girls to code and program, and today the organization has served 450,000 girls and has reached 500 million people in the United States and around the world through its online resources and campaigns. Let's be very clear, you know on this show, it wasn't Reshma woke up one day and tried a thing and the thing immediately worked and grew into this amazing global purpose-driven organization. No, no, you guys know better than that by now. In our conversation, Reshma talks about growing up in the Midwest as the daughter of refugee parents from Uganda, her valiant three-time attempt to get into Yale, and how having multiple miscarriages really really made her question her worth as a woman and her aspirations from a family perspective. On the show, Reshma also shares about her failed aspirations, yes, plural, in politics, and how this entire chapter in her life was actually the impetus for making an incredible impact in an entirely different arena, closing the gender gap in technology. Also, quick warning... There's some salty language here in this podcast, so if you have little ears around, you know, could be great conversation for them, (laughs) or you could just not have them listen to it. All right. Thanks, everybody. I can't wait for you to hear from Reshma. Enjoy the show. Reshma, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited to have you and to dive in a little bit more into your story. Thank you for having
1: me. I'm excited to chat with you.
0: Tell us a little bit about kind of into your childhood. What were kind of some of the core formative parts of your childhood that you consider a pretty important part of who you are today? It's great because I was
1: just with in my childhood home with my parents. Oh, no Uh, way. Is that where you were on vacation? Uh, Well, I dropped my kids off there and then I went on vacation. Wow, you
0: are winning the mom game right now. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) I will send your trophy with your mom and necklace in the mail. Please do. You
1: know, my parents came here as refugees in 1973. And my mother was several months pregnant with my sister. And so they came here kind of like in their mid-20s to Chicago, Illinois.
0: And I read that they were refugees from Uganda during the Idi Amin Regine. So one of our art, the company that I was mentioning to you before we started yeah. talking is actually based, we started in Uganda. <laughs> so very familiar with what happened in the 70s. Can you just share a little bit about the context of how your parents immigrated to the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So my parents were actually two generations of my family, but were born in Uganda. So my parents were actually born in Uganda. Okay. Wow. And one set of my grandparents were actually born in Uganda too. So that was home. And literally my dad was watching television one day in Uganda and the dictator Idi Amin came on and he had had a dream or something that he needed to expel all of the Ugandan Asians from the country. He was just a crazy person. And he just got on television one day and said, you got 90 days y'all to leave the country or else you'd be shot on spot. So we had a huge family in Africa. and So everybody was just scrambling And my mom and dad were both, had engineering degrees. And so they were the only ones out of like, you know, six brothers and sisters, nine brothers and sisters that got refugee status to come to the United States because the West was like desperately seeking engineers. Wow! And you left Uganda, you couldn't take anything with you. So they would hide jewelry and like toothpaste tubes. And, you know, it was scary. Yeah, uh, and and coming to this country not knowing the language, they had no family here. All the rest of their family had ended up in refugee camps, sprinkled all throughout Europe. So they were coming alone. Yeah, and so their story is really like a story of of courage and of resiliency. And so came to Chicago, Illinois. I was born in Berwyn. You know, a few years later, and my dad, even though they were trained engineers, my father worked as a machinist in a plant. Um, my mother sold cosmetics. Um, My dad changed his name from Mukund to Mike. So, you know, Mm. I grew up in the eighties in the Midwest where there wasn't a lot of Brown people. Yeah. And my name was like Reshma, right? Nobody could ever pronounce it. I was embarrassed of it. Mm. You know, my parents had to kind of get rid of their saris and their bindis and their culture and their religion and just assimilate. Like that's kind of what she did. You know, my dad, went to Toastmasters every week to get rid of his wow. accent. And, you know, I get pissed if they like made curry and roti because I w- didn't want to smell like it. And I mean, it was really, you know, it was, it's, it's really wild to kind of think of today where I think that there's so much more of a celebration of culture. Mm. We were in uh, Utah on vacation and we were visiting, you know, some Indian reservations. And I was remembering when I was a kid, when I would go to school and I would say I was Indian, they'd be like, what tribe? Like Mm. you'd never say that today, you know. People kind of know what India, the country, is, yeah. um, Or they've eaten Indian food before, you know. Like, but back then it was it was just very different. Growing up as a kid and just feeling so out of place, and so in in many ways just embarrassed by who I was.
0: We have, um, I feel like not on purpose, but we have interviewed so many people on this show that are either immigrants or the children of immigrants, which I don't think is (laughs) accidental. You know, I think that there is some commonalities with just the human experience of grit and resiliency and creativity. But on a different note, the insecurity about your food, about taking lunch to school seems so consistent with the immigrant experience of like being made fun of for the way that your food is going to smell. And it's just such a fascinating, like that's such an important part of our culture and how we're connected to home and our family. That has just been something that I've been so struck by that I think nearly every single person has mentioned of being one of the hard parts of being a child of an immigrant family in the United States.
1: Yeah, because all you want to do is fit in, right? I remember, you know, we're Hindu, so we don't eat beef, right? So like, you don't go to McDonald's or if you go to McDonald's, you like, you know, have some like secret, like give me a cheese sandwich, but I think as a kid having to explain that, yeah, was just really uh, humiliating. I also just don't—I don't think in the '80s we had the same tolerance, or maybe—I maybe I don't know. I'm not a kid today, but mm-hmm. just kind of watching my son who's six, it's just—I don't think he walks around feeling afraid that I'm gonna be—he's gonna be made fun of in mm-hmm. the way that I did, girl. Yeah.
0: Up. Well, there's—you know—that that seems hopeful to me that although it's probably changing to too slowly that at least maybe it is actually changing. And just, I think your point of like cultural awareness, it's like, I didn't have Indian food actually until I was a young adult and moved to Uganda. That was the first time I had Indian food. And the Indian food there is obviously really good. I can't, Um, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And I was just like, where has this been my whole life? But I was, you know, in my early twenties. Whereas like now, you know, I have a five-year-old, a three-year-old and a baby and my kids who are white are very familiar with Indian food, yeah. you know? So I do feel like there is some change in just like a familiarity in the right direction that's happening. And it's encouraging to hear you say firsthand, watching your son who's six, yeah. hopefully have it a little bit easier than you did.
1: And I just think, I think my, I think our strategy was different. Like my parents, and mm. I understand. I think that they were trying to, you know, I barely could speak Gujarati, which was our language. Mm. Barely. Right. It's like, they were trying to just fit in and assimilate. And I think they didn't want to make yeah. it harder for us, which I'm like the opposite, right? I'm blaring the Bollywood music, you know, while I'm like picking him up from like tennis mm-hmm. game, right? <laughs> I love <laughs> that. Like, you know, it's like, I'm like, it's like the, op- it's like the fear that we're going to lose yeah. culture and lose yeah. who you are. And so it's just a different, it's a different approach, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you grew
0: up with a pretty, Typical immigrant child experience. Tell us about you went to high school. What was next for you?
1: So after high school, I went to college at University of Illinois Urbana. I remember on a trip, I got the chance to like go to New York City for a conference and I just fell in love. So I was this girl who just was like, get me out of here. Like there was something bigger, something bolder waiting for me. You know, mostly all my friends still live in the same neighborhood that we grew Mm. up in but I just had this desperate need to get out. So, you know, I wanted to finish college really early. I just wanted to get it over with and like move on to the next stage of my life. I mean, my eyes or my ambition or whatever it was, whatever I was being called towards, just, I felt it so deeply. Um, So I went to university, of Illinois, Urbana, I went to state school, went and got my master's at the Kennedy school of government at Harvard. I was obsessed with going to Yale law school and I finally got in after the third try. Okay, I mean,
0: let's let's talk about that a little <laughs> bit. Tell us about trying to get into Yale three times. Let's camp out there. So first time you get rejected, how devastated are you? How devastated and how
1: surprised are you that you didn't get in? I'm devastated and I'm shocked. I okay. basically I decided I was going to Yale when I was like 13. Okay. Um. So this was the plan, always the plan. Uh-huh. I am in college. I'm like, you know, basically a 3.999. I'm like first in my class, like, you know, I'm just like I've been focused, yeah. laser focused. You know, I take my LSAT and I just kind of don't do that I'm great. Okay. Right. It's just I'm not a good test taker, wasn't then, still not. And but still I'm like, this is my destiny. Like this is what's gonna happen. And you know, get that rejection letter and I am crushed. And then I get into some you know really good schools, but I'm like, nope, I'm going to you. <laughs> ah! That was the plan.
0: Okay. So your plan B was actually pretty decent, but you were like, No, it's not gonna work no. for me.
1: Yeah, like I got into Northwestern. and got to like good schools. Yeah. My parents are just angry with me. So then I side tour and I'm like, I don't know. I saw this flyer for like a public policy major at the Kennedy School of Government. And, I, and, and by this time I'd worked on my first campaign. So I'm obsessed with politics. Okay. I've always loved, been an activist my whole life. So I was like, great, there's a government school? Like, I didn't know about that. Sign me up, you know? So I detour and go and get my master's in public policy. My parents are pissed. They cut me off they pissed
0: that you didn't go to, like,
1: Northwestern for law school? Right. Like, okay. I had... My dad was like, you, have three, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. That's it. I don't know what you're talking about, government school. Like, I don't even know what that is. No. Like, you know, so... I, was I like, love that in your family. Like, I'm like, Dad, Harvard. He's like, I don't believe you. It's not Harvard. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's like... Literally cuts me off for going to Harvard for grad school. I'm going to Harvard and I shop at Harvard living on a friend's couch that, like, I like someone through I knew from somebody because I'm didn't only have money
0: laughing. To- I'm sure that was really painful. It just feels oh. like so wild that, like, the wayward child is wayward for going to Harvard for grad
1: school. Would not talk to me like the first year that I, wow. I literally. Cannot cut me off. I'm like broke. I'm working at like, you know, a restaurant. I mean, it's just like, wow. And I'm living on a friend's couch until my student loans come in.
0: Wow. Right. Yeah. And I, I,
1: have the money in the bank. Yeah. Right. It's, it's insane. But yeah. it's like very, like I, when I tell this to like my Indian friends are like, of course, like, you know, like, yeah. like Asian parents are like hardcore. Yeah. Right. About this stuff. Yeah. The path is narrow. You know, I'm like, all right. And I apply again, get rejected again, or maybe I get waitlisted the second time. But then eventually get rejected. And finally, I had, my mentor was this incredible judge, Leon Higginbotham Jr., hmm. who had gone to Yale Law School, was very famous Black jurist. He was like, I'm going to write you a recommendation letter, and you're going to get it. Hmm. A few weeks before he wrote my recommendation letter, he dies. <gasps> no. Yes. So I'm devastated that my mentor oh, has passed. Yeah. I don't have that recommendation letter that I've now been waiting like three years to get. Yeah. Right? Oh my gosh! So I'm at his funeral, and at his funeral, of course, all of like the you know, professors, the dean, everybody's there. Yeah. So like somehow I get like an appointment with the dean of Yale Law School, okay. like who's probably out of pity because I'm crying at a funeral that he's at. Right? And by now I've gotten rejected again. Right? And so. I just, like, go to your law school, take the train, have this appointment with Dean. I don't know how I get I get in there. He's expecting a very... And I was like, listen, like, I, you need to let me in. Like, you need to let me in. This is a school I'm meant to go to. i you know, waiting my whole life. Fine, I don't have, like, 100% of my LSATs, but, like, let me in. And he, you know, Dean Cromman just kind of looks at me. He's like, all right, I'll make you a deal. You get into all the amazing law schools. You pick any of them. I mean, i would gotten into Georgetown, like, university pens everywhere. Like I was just, and he's like, go to any of them. And if you get into the top 10% of, I will let you transfer. Oh, interesting. A little challenge. So it wasn't like the ideal outcome that I wanted, but it like extended my obsession for like a little bit longer. Right. So I decided I picked Georgetown because, you know, obviously I love politics. I'm like, great. I get into the top 10% and I transfer Yale law school.
0: So tell me a little bit about the story that you had in your head. Like, I don't think you're in the majority that i like face multiple rejections. And it sounds like you were just like, they're dumb for not letting me in. Like, what was your belief system? What was the story that you were telling yourself that enabled you to be that, I would say, plucky in your pursuit of like, this is where I belong?
1: The only thing I can compare it to now is having a baby and the fertility challenges that I went through. Mm. And, you know, I had had five miscarriages, wow. you know, I was just, you know, more IVFs than I could speak to, more DNCs than I could speak. I mean, just, it was like a decade of hell. Yeah, And everybody was like, Brushman, just give it up. It's okay. You know, you, you don't need to be mom. And my doctors, everybody was just, everybody was just mm. like, but I could not, let it go. Mm. I just felt like there were these, even after I finally had my first son. Even, now, then again, I'm starting that road again of miscarriages and IVFs and blah 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 blah. And I just, I just felt their souls. Mm. I know it sounds cheesy, mm. but I just felt like there are these two now little boys mm. who were just meant to be together. And I have, I'm just, I just couldn't let it go. And I was willing to do things physically, mentally, that other people I know are not capable of doing. And I'm not saying that with pride. I just am saying that. And it's kind of the same thing again about, I just felt like I was meant to do it and it wasn't ever going to come easy. And I think that's like a little bit of the story of my life is that things don't come easy, Mm. but I don't give up. Now, there are other things. You know, I've run for office twice. I've lost twice. I don't keep running for (laughs) losing. Yeah. So I think other things where I do know how to be like, all right, this isn't the time. Okay. But for both of those things, I just I couldn't let it go.
0: So you, because I think that's really it's a really fascinating and useful conversation about grit perseverance, and then also this other question about knowing when to quit or pivot or evolve and let, you know, a one version of the dream go. So if you had to sum up the differences between those two experiences of like one plan B, was not an option. And it was like, I'm just going to keep showing up. And then your run in politics being like, okay, I had two misses. I had two losses. I'm not going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I'm going to move on and let this evolve into something else, which we'll get to later in the show. But how do I know when to evolve and pivot versus when to like keep at it? If one of your kids asked you that, what would you say?
1: So I was watching this amazing video of Giannis, you know, the basketball player. Yeah, yeah. He was talking about kind of how he thinks about stuff and he was saying you know I try not to live in the past so I don't think about damn like I won that game I got that title I'm like the best he goes because when I'm doing that I know that that is my ego talking mm. and he goes and then I try not to live in the future I'm not like oh that next game I'm gonna crush it I'm gonna win the championship I'm gonna do this I'm gonna be this that that he goes because when I do that I know that that's my pride talking mm. so I try to live in the middle, in the present and just focus on the task at hand. And so I think I've had a similar approach to that. Mm. So when I'm living in the present, you know, then I know whether it's my ego talking or my pride talking. Right. So when I was like, I am here, I'm going to do another round of IVF or I'm going to not give up. I got to figure out, is that because I'm just, again, I'm, my ego, and that my ego was about, like, why isn't my body working? Mm-hmm. Like everybody else's body. Yeah. Yeah. I said, Easier. Why is this celebrity having her freaking ninth child? You know what I mean? And I can't even keep a baby, you know? You know, and it's that feeling of like I have failed Mm. at what is supposed to be my right as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And or is it because I really feel like this is just I'm meant to keep pushing, like it's not done yet. And I think being really in the present is really important in knowing the mm-hmm. what's what. Yeah. And so, you know, there are moments in politics where and I, recently, when I, I recently stepped off of the CEO of Girls, I really thought I was going to run again. And I was just right there. And I realized that, oh, I want to do it because that's my pride. Mm-hmm. It's not actually because this is the way I can most make a difference. And so I think constantly being able to like be in your head and in your thoughts yeah. and know what is pushing that decision is really important.
0: Yeah, it sounds a lot like knowing the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Like, is this coming from a deep, deep within myself of like in order to be who I was created to be and make the greatest impact in the world, this is my path? Or is this what other people want me to do where I'll get affirmation, where I might look great? Yeah. And recognizing that those can feel like really powerful motivating factors in the present, but like really taking the time to understand like, is this other people's opinions and my ego talking? I think ego work and recognizing what your ego wants versus what your like true, true self. What wants. you really want. Yeah. And
1: I, and I also think like what's meant to. I, I'm a big believer in destiny. I do believe that like we're all kind of put on this earth to do a path, mm. and you can either follow that path or you can deviate from it. But I think to know like my gut has always been right, always been right. Mm. And part of what I think the journey is, is like a lot of people have a lot to say about that. Like when I decided to step off from being CEO of Girls to Code, I didn't ask people, mm. should I do this? Should I not do this? I just really every night would just kind of meditate on like, mm. how am I feeling? Mm. And so when I do that, things kind of work out. But when I get too distracted by other people's thoughts or the shiny thing or what I'm supposed, what I think I'm supposed to be doing, you know, that's when I get off path. Yeah. Like right now I'm in this weird moment where I'm in between things. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm like picking up my kid from like, you know, tennis camp at three 30 or like doing the grocery shopping or like I am mom this summer. Yeah. And I, I mean, last for seven, six years of my son's life, I saw him an hour a day, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so this is a new beautiful experience, but I have to keep remind this is beautiful mm-hmm. and not like, Am I a fuck up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. Like is this is this the end of my career? Yeah. And so you can go in these like crazy places if you don't have that discipline of mind.
0: Okay, so listen. I just tried the green enchiladas from Real Good Foods because when they approached us to sponsor the show, I was going to try it first because y'all know I'm not going to share something with you that I don't actually believe in. So I tried these enchiladas and people, I was pretty surprised. First of all, to be honest, I do not buy frozen meals. I haven't since like I was in college because I kind of just figured they were all either a little bit gross or packed with fake foods and things that don't nourish my body. But I tried out these enchiladas. I was very delighted by how they tasted. They were super flavorful. And even the texture felt like substantial and real. Like the shredded chicken was real shredded chicken, which by the way, it is antibiotic-free also. And it took me like four minutes to make. So just win, win, win. And now Real Good Foods have actually made it to my real-life grocery list for times when I need something that's quick, tasty, and healthy. So thank you, Real Good Foods. To learn more, you can check out realgoodfoods.com and at realgoodfoods on social. You can get $15 off a minimum $15 purchase by using the promo code PLUCKUP15. The link is in our show notes. I would love to dive in a little bit into your experience in politics and those two Tell us about the first loss. Like, tell us about where was your headspace going into it? Your because the interesting thing I think about politics is that it's one of the most public and like black and white win versus lose like so many other professions you can kind of spin a story right about like success or not there's no spinning there's like but in politics it's literally like I lost I failed it's so distinct that I'm I'm curious will you just kind of like take us back there and try if you can without the hindsight that you know of course the rest you know how the story ends and everybody who keeps listening to the show is gonna learn how the story ends but We don't know how the story ends when we're in the midst of facing failure and rejection. So can you take us back there and dive into that experience a little bit? Yes. So, you know, I ran for office
1: and I was super naive. Like, I really believed I was 33 years old. And when I ran, I ran against a, for those who are, you know, into politics, I ran in a Democratic primary against a Democrat. Now that's typical, right? Like, Mm. Ocasio did issue Mm. one. Back then, 10 years ago, it was, no one did that. No one did that. Like I guess I started a trend a little bit, and so it was very ostracizing. Like when I made the decision to do it, there were people who just couldn't be friends with me anymore, couldn't wow. talk to me. Like, yeah, it was like it was really, really, really isolated. But at the same time, it was awesome because people who did like that move and who felt like we actually needed a a system where more people could run and there was more opportunity we like right on. Yeah. Sign me up.
0: Yeah. So maybe a smaller group of people, but a people that were like really committed. believers. To yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and so in the beginning it was just exhilarating because mm. I was working in, in corporate America. I hated this job. So then I quit and it was like, you know, and if anyone's ever started something. It's like that beginning phase when like you're learning and you're figuring out and like, you know, so, and I had a good group of friends and family, who just, you know, we were just, we didn't know what we were doing. So everything was, like, fun and different. I mean, like, we built a website. Jack Dorsey was, you know, a friend. And we used Square as the first so casually.
0: <laughs> That's a good person to have a friend when no, you're building a website.
1: You, to use Square. Um, John Legend. I mean, but also, back then, 10 years ago, John Legend was a, a friend of ours, too, that like, did my first concert. But back then, like, they weren't who they were today. Okay. Like, that, you know what I'm saying? So, like, we were just, like, these scrappy kids just supporting one another and like doing things that were like not done back then. Yeah, And everyone was just, it was anti-establishment. Mm. So it was like, what? So the campaign was awesome and fun and terrifying, you know, like I had never been on television before. My first interview was like Chris Matthews. I didn't even know where to look on the screen. I looked like an idiot. Right. Like <laughs> I, you know, like just, I made so many mistakes. You know, like, and I was young and I was a woman, and so people write about my shoes, my clothes, and what I'm wearing, what I'm doing. And, but it was just so much fun. It was exhilarating. And because we had created so much hype, I thought I was going to win. Yeah. And we didn't have any money to do a poll. So I didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. So even if you run for office in New York City, especially, like, you're on the subway stop and you're like, vote for me. And like, oh, I voted for you. And they're just lying. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's just, it's hard. So, but I didn't know that, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm crushing it. Like, so I'm thinking I'm going to have the biggest night of my life, right? And I'm going to have a concession speech in my bag. Wow. You know, and we get to the hotel room and like, we turn on the television. My dad's there, you know, and like the little ticker is just not moving past ninety percent and I had just, I lost. My dad was like, okay, I'm going to bed. And I, all these young staffers or like organizers had postered the entire hotel room, all these different post notes. Wow. That had been like, can't wait to get to Washington. We're going to crush it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. And um, I just felt like I had left her. Left, and all I wanted to do was cry. Yeah.
0: Because you didn't just lose. Like you, you really lost. I got housed.
1: You- <laughs> and... <laughs> And you know, going back, like I had, you know, I had brought in everybody into my little rebellion, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So it was like all of our losses, right? It I and I was the first Indian American South Asian woman to ever run for office, so it was like so historic. I mean, so I just felt like I'd let everybody down, and all I wanted to do was just cry. Yeah, and I had this young. This woman, Rebecca, had been following me the whole campaign and she just watched me. And I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm going to be strong. And because she's going to remember this moment, how I behaved, you know, in this moment. So, you know, went to, and I had to call the congresswoman I'd lost against who hated me, still hates me, right? And concede. And it was just, it oh, was just it's awful. so
0: painful. Oh, so you know, painful. One of my
1: victory party, everybody's crying. You know, so I don't even know what to say. And I, of course, like, like, you know brazenly we'd be like I, we're going to run again you know what i mean because i just and i just come home back to the hotel room and with my husband who was, not, was my boyfriend then my best friends and i just cry and then the next morning was brutal mm. because i knew that the new york times to the you know everything would just be like brutal yeah and especially when women lose mm the way they write things very
0: different. In what way? What's the main, what's like your main observation there?
1: I remember like one of the stories, they calculated the amount of money I had spent to the votes I had gotten. Wow. And it was basically like, she's a joke. And most recently I'm thinking about Andrew Yang, who ran the mayor's race. And every article was about how wonderful it was that he conceded. No one talked about how he had raised the most amount of money and came in like fifth. You know what I mean? Like not one article, right. About yeah. it. But like, for me, it was like, it was a gleeful dissection. I mean, if you look at the last presidential race, I mean, Peter Brunschag, you know what I mean? Andrew gets to run for mayor, Pete gets to be treasurer. I mean, it's just, it is a different state of affairs. Yeah. You know what I mean? When women lose that has stayed the same. Yeah, I mean, there's a
0: study that I read and this was in it, not in politics. It was kind of more in venture capital. But the the point was they looked at founders who had had a failed initiative before they went out to raise money for their next company. And they found that male founders that had failed in their last company and were out raising money again for a new venture were statistically significantly more likely to get funded because the story about them was like, hey, they have some experience. They tried, they failed, but they learned and they're probably grittier and smarter for it. Whereas female founders... It's already abysmal the amount of venture capital funding they're able to get in the first place. But if they have a failure on their record, they are statistically very significantly even less likely than they were the first time to be able to raise money because the story that funders, mainly white men, are telling themselves is like she had her chance and she proved that she's incompetent and she's like a failure. And it's like and this is happening right now in like 2021. This is like our culture's view is that for a man Failure is experience and it's valuable. And for a woman, it just proves that she was incompetent in the first place. Yeah. And for you to have experienced that so firsthand, I think is really that is a very fascinating life experience to have.
1: And it's, 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 I always say failure is a privilege for men, uh, but it's not for women. Yeah. So to your point, the next day, even though I had raised $1.5 million, here I was, this daughter of refugees, I had $5,000 in my bank. You know, I was like, this just came from nothing. Yeah. And to do that, yeah, even if I lost, that demonstrated what was going to be my future. Right. What you were capable of. But the next day, nobody calls me. No one from the party says, wow, like you have some shown, some, like, how can I help you figure this out? Yeah. Nothing.
0: Yeah. Right. Like,
1: yeah. and so I'm devastated yeah. and just heartbroken but then I picked myself up and I always say like my hack on failure was I like gave myself a month to drink like margaritas okay. and like ask my boyfriend, now my husband a million times, what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? Yeah. Blah 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 blah. Yeah. And then I was done. Yeah. And I think the thing about your first loss for me, my second loss was harder. Okay. Because my first be like, well, if I did this and I hired this person yeah. and I made that decision, then I maybe would have could have had a different outcome. Mm-hmm. So I was able, I think, to pick up after my first loss, much easier. Interesting, And it was yeah. a big reveal for me too that like failure didn't break me. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the thing since I was a little girl I wanted mm-hmm. and I didn't work out and it was so humiliating. Like I knew everybody was talking about me. Yeah. Let's,
0: let's camp out there. You just use the word humiliating, which I think is like a really powerful emotion that a lot of people can't end up working through of like the the feeling that it's like people are talking about me. And especially for a woman, man, I put myself out there. I tried. I showed that I wanted it and then I didn't get it. I do think that that it is. I think a common emotion associated with that is like embarrassment and humiliation. And I think that that's one of the most powerful human emotions that can make people run and hide and say like, I will live my life attempting to never have to feel that again. Yeah. And so what I love about your story is that I love that you're not like I didn't feel that. You're like no, I felt it deep. I was literally humiliated. I was so embarrassed. I woke up the next morning crushed. But we know you haven't spent the rest of your life attempting just to avoid that. So can you kind of just like walk us through what were you holding on to in those moments of truly being humiliated, you know, having people say, not only did she lose, but like, what a joke. She wasted all of this money. How dare she like try? What would you say was the thing that you were holding on that was stronger than
1: humiliation or embarrassment? I think it's like, I'll show you. Yeah. I've always had that as a kid, yeah. even as a kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, all right. You want to laugh at me because my mom has a been the on her head. Mm-hmm. You want to make fun of me because you can't pronounce my name. You're going to tell me that I bathe in curry. All right, I'll show you. Yeah. I'll show you what I've become. Yeah. And so I think it was a little, I think that there's a danger to that too. Mm-hmm. Now I'm learning in my older age, right? Because that is a little bit of that external
0: motivation that we kind of talked about slightly. There, I mean, I guess it could be either way, but it seems to me like it would be easy for that to slip into more external motivation of like, yeah. I need to show them versus like, this is... Yeah. This is the core of who I am.
1: Well, this is the work that I've been doing, you know, uh, (laughs) in like therapy and meditation and like, which is why even when I think about running again, I have to ask myself, is it because I want to be accepted? Mm -hmm. Is this Mm -hmm. the same girl in high school that was invited to the cool person's party? Yeah, Like you want that accepted. Is that why you want to do it again or is it something else? And so I think that like in many ways back then, it was a great sense of, like, a way to kind of, I guess, recover or, yeah. you know, build back. But I think now I have to always catch myself. Now I just, I don't let, people make me feel bad if they're mean to me. And I think, but more of it is, like, why do people have to be that way?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, I'm laughing because yesterday I was driving in the car with my husband and I, don't, I wasn't paying attention. So maybe he did actually cut this guy off. But this guy comes up next to us. Whatever he did, it wasn't like dangerous. It was like, oh, yeah, whatever. This guy comes up and he rolls his window down and our windows are down anyway. And the amount of rage that this man has, it's just like you can just tell, it's like, you can't conjure that up. That was just beneath the surface. And he's got some line. He's like, so your car doesn't come with a turn signal. And he's screaming. <laughs> We've got, you know, our three little kids in the back and he's like, you know, dropping the F-bomb and like flipping us off. And I literally, we're like on the highway and I just like make eye contact with this man. And I'm like, therapy is a really good investment. That was, <laughs> that was the only, that was the thing that came fastest to my mind of just like, this may be a little bit about us, but this is a lot about you in this moment that you could have that much rage in your heart that easily accessible. But I do feel like part of maybe that's just like my new metaphor for life is like, I need to ask myself, like, should I have used my blinker differently? That's a very fair question to ask of like, I could have done something differently. But also I'm not responsible for that response that you had to maybe a wrong decision that I made. But like, you
1: also have to take ownership for how that is
0: seriously triggering for you too.
1: And you have to like, I think in my older age too, I recognize like, I don't want to let somebody else's drama influence my decisions. Mm, yeah. Last week, a friend of mine, or you know, a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine, and she was like, oh my God, it was at dinner. And I was out there. And she's mom having dinner by herself and yeah. you know how we do that yeah. sometimes, right? And there's these group of women who were just talking shit about me next door about like the thing I built. Like, oh, I was building this, mom's movement and they're like is that a priority i mean really is that the next thing she wants to do and and she tells me this and it, my first instinct was like are they right like is this mm. like trivial compared to like what but then i was like no see this is the problem yeah. like even when i'm building something to help them the people that are being helped i think it's still true that's why this problem is so gnarly yeah it needs to be solved yeah but i think that like Rushma 20 years ago might have really sat with that. Totally. Rushma today sat with that thought for one minute and then let it pass and then gone. Recognizing again that that's their issue, their envy, their
0: envy, insecurity, so much like that is so people who are deeply like fulfilled and like living life on a mission and like, I know what my purpose is, I'm making an impact, I'm feeling fulfilled. They don't do that. <laughs> so it's like you can kind of automatically know that it's like, oh man, that criticism or that reaction that is clearly like very demeaning or triggering, like that is being born out of a sense of like, you clearly don't necessarily feel that. Because if you did, the only reaction, if any, would be like, great, good for you, like cheering for you, even if you're like, that's not my thing. Yeah. Even if it's like, I don't, partic- I'm not particularly interested in that. I don't have a need for that. But still, like, you do you, yeah. like cheering for you, moving on.
1: And we all kind of get there, right? Like, I'll catch myself. We all catch ourselves when you're being a little negative on somebody. Oh, wait, wait, why am I feeling that way? Yeah. Like, what is that about? It's always about you. Always. It's never about the other thing that you're talking
0: about. Yeah. And I noticed that I'm most critical of other people it's just a direct line between something I'm feeling really insecure about. That it's like, I feel bad about that or lacking in that area or insecure. And so it's just like, it's usually a pretty straight shot right back to that. Like, oh yeah, you're not feeling very confident in this area of your life. And that's like manifesting and you'll feel better if you can convince yourself that you don't even want that or that it doesn't matter. Look, Look at her even trying and that's kind of embarrassing or whatever it is. Right. So tell us a little bit about why, so your second loss was harder because you were like you f- I'm guessing you fixed the things you did the things differently and then you still lost so tell us about where did that land you like what was that narrative
1: the second loss was hard second loss, I cried at my party like yeah full on yeah right yeah because it felt like the thing that I felt I, I I couldn't understand it yeah I could ran a perfect campaign it was just you know I was me I didn't make any mistakes yeah and so the second loss felt like a rejection of me. Mm-hmm. And it was like this, I had to come back and be like, man, maybe the thing that I always wanted to do, I'm just not going to get to do in this lifetime. Yeah, And that was hard. Mm-hmm. And it's still hard. Yeah. You know, I would say, but I still took that loss and I was like, all right, because part of the campaign I ran was about getting girls, computer science education, in New York city. And I was like, Oh, and this is when girls Who Code was like, like a nothing burger yet you know we had just launched it but it wasn't so i again took that loss and I was like all right you're not going to let me i'm going to build it anyway yeah and that's what gave me the fire hmm. right over the past decade to build this mass movement and you know it's a question like i, I don't know if i didn't lose that race whether i would have had so much intentionality about building roles of Code to be what I built it into.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love when you t- kind of talked about uh, in your TED Talk, kind of segueing into your passion and mission to raise braver girls. One of the things that you shared is that you found when boys were coding and they were struggling or in a university setting where they're struggling with the course material or whatever it is, that they would come to their professors with the sense of like, something is wrong with my code. Yeah. The thing that I made is wrong. Whereas the typical female would come and say, something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm Something's not clicking with me. And it's really interesting to hear that that was your experience in politics. It wasn't like something was broken with my campaign because it sounds like in the first run, you had a real growth mentality that it was like, okay, I can fix it. I can make it better. And then in the second run, it was like, no, 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 something is like fundamentally wrong with me. And I do wonder that it's like, having experienced that on a visceral level of asking that question of like, am I broken? I wondered the level of empathy and insight that that gave you to build Girls Who Code with that knowledge, that this is something that women and girls experience um, in a way that's really different than what the typical
1: boy next door to them does. Wow, I never really, I need to think about what you just said. (laughs) I never really thought about it that way, but you're right. That is kind of, I, I guess the narrative that I took away from this is that for a lot of us, traditional institutions and structures may not ever let us in. I may not be the set up for politics, mm. but I think that that experience taught me, like, all right, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to build something on my own. Mm. And like, I can build it. You know what I mean? And yeah. I know yeah. with my hustle, and my grit, and my resiliency, I can build anything. Yeah. So I think that that was kind of the lesson of like, and what is the version of that of like, I'm broken versus the computer is broken. Like, I think that that is kind of like the system is not set up yeah. in many ways to kind of reward that. Yeah. Maybe you have to create your own structure or your own system. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, um, so you lost in your second race, and there's this question maybe of like maybe girls who code wouldn't have actually ever come into existence, or I guess rather be the institution and the organization and the movement that we know it is today. Will you tell us a little bit about that evolution of kind of letting go of the lifelong since I was a little girl dream um, to build this thing that eventually did become a movement that was really backed and fueled by your purpose and, and passion for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, think so. I, you know, lose that race. I come back and decide to build Girls Code and really build it formally, scale it like at 300% every year. And, you know, I had this, probably a year into it, I had this kind of reveal a little bit that like, wow, like even though I lost, maybe I can build a generation of girls who are going to make change, like solve, you know, COVID cancer and climate. And it was that sense of like sending this army into maybe Congress one day or the world or Silicon Valley who are going to like be change makers is what moved me, um, I also like. I fell in love with politics because I wanted to make a difference. As cheesy as that sounds, and for me, I just the emotional connection that I have for girls and women's equality and education. Because I just think that so much of like what's broken in the world right now, like, will be healed by women and girls. And so that was really what drove me. And so really put my head down, you know, for ten years and just now. Not gonna lie, I don't think I've fully resolved my loss. Yeah. It's not not in a bow. Yeah. But I'm getting closer to trying to understand what it's about. And you know, the mantra that I've I kept I keep saying to myself is I make decisions on what's gonna best serve the people. Yeah. But you know, my coach said to me this really powerful thing the other day. She said, You are allowed to have something for you. Mm. You know, if I get to a place where Maybe running for office isn't the best way I can make change. And the best way I can make change is keep building movements like I'm Mm -hmm. doing. Mm -hmm. But I kind of want that experience or I want that thing. That's okay.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good. And I think that what it seems like you've done over the last decade is been able to release a little bit of the what and the how with maintaining the why, right? If it's like, if the reason that you wanted to get into politics in the first place was to create this impact, I think a lot of our journey of figuring out who we are and in our path and what, you know, what we were made to do oftentimes is letting go of our vision of how we think it's going to work or what we think we're actually going to do and instead get back to the why of like, but what's, what is the why? And for you, it led you to a completely different mechanism for creating that impact. Um, but I do also think that there is something really powerful to be said, especially for women, that it's like, but also, I enjoy this and it brings me to life and I'm energized and it's fun is really valuable. And that shouldn't be seen as something that's just, you know, because I I think that's, especially as women, and this is why I feel like women in impact work can get so burnt out, is because we think that it's selfish or wrong to say like, yes, I want to make an impact, Also, this is what I find enjoyable, um, that that's not selfish or wrong or like, you know, secondary, that it's like, I think ultimately to make the greatest impact in the world um, that we can, that we're able to, that it's really important that we consider our likes and our dislikes are what, you know, what energizes us. Because ultimately, if you get into something that it's like, I'm doing this and it's for the good, but man, the day-to-day blows. I hate it. I don't feel like I'm good at it. Like, it doesn't bring me to life. I'm not energized by it. Like, Ultimately like you're gonna burn out and probably the, <laughs> the net impact that you're gonna be able to make is actually gonna be severely limited if you don't take those things seriously.
1: That's right. And that's why I think it's like, you know, when I got to the end of Rolls of Code, I felt like like, okay, I had done it. Like meaning like I didn't also feel like I didn't know what else there was left to learn. And I felt like I would built something that I wanted to pass to somebody else. Yeah. And so no one ever tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, Rashma, like you can be a serial ent- social entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how to do this. And if you did this for Girls Who Code, you can go do this for moms. Yeah. And I, you know, did that. Yeah. But now I realize that we need to like be tapping people on the shoulder mm-hmm. six years in, eight years in, and be like, okay, you built that movement or you built this. What's the next thing that you've been thinking about? Yeah. All right. Here's some seed capital for that. Because it's just like social entrepreneurship is just like any other entrepreneurship. Like, once you know how to do the thing. Yeah. You know how to do the thing. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. So will you tell us a little bit more about this next um, mom-focused venture?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I really believe that motherhood in America... I always say my most important title is mom. But I don't always feel like mom is valued Mm. in the way that it needs to be. Yeah. And that is cultural, right? If you look at every depiction of moms, either we're exhausted with like five kids hanging from us... Or we're like, you know, 102 pounds after we just had a baby. None of it is real or authentic. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way with girls in coding, we used to like characterize it as being uncool. Like we need to change the cultural mm-hmm. representation of motherhood mm-hmm. because it's just not attractive right now for a lot of people, mm-hmm. which is why the birth rate has declined. Mm-hmm. Lowest it's been in 50 years. You know, I think secondly, we got to root out the motherhood penalty. I mean, I realize I've spent so much of my life trying to get women to get the corner office when we never really had a chance. Hmm. We're still doing 86% of like the labor at home. Until we get to equality in the home, we're never going to get to equality in the workplace. Yeah. We don't focus on that. And we need to. And, you know, and finally, you know, we can't be the country that does it the worst in terms of the things. You know, moms can't not get nice things. We need paid leave, affordable childcare. And if you look at every major movement by moms, we're always out there fighting for things for somebody else. Mm. Climate change, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, you know, Mothers for Gun Reform, right? But what about what we need? Mm. And so, you know, I want to build, you know, a, a building a movement, you know, that's going to change the status of motherhood both in the public sector and the private sector once and for all. Marshall Plan for Moms has been the way that we've, you know, that this kind of organization or movement that I've built uh, that's that's been doing that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing to do that. Thank you so much for sharing and for sharing more about your journey and for what you are creating in the world through Girls with Code and um, also through this new movement. It's so important and we're so grateful. And um, I hope you enjoy your first day back into reality after vacation. I will. That was so much fun. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Well, I hope you all liked today's episode as much as I did. This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram at lizbohannon or at Human Group Media. All right, that's all. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky.